Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning and you are with Lyle and... Renee, good morning. Renee, how are you this morning? Oh, I'm so good. I feel really good to, to be here. And what are you thankful for this morning? Well, I woke up this morning and I felt a little sore in my muscles and I was like, oh, that's right, I played basketball and I'm very grateful that I had a time to run around and play game, you know, because like other than Get studying... Up. This is true. This is true. You need to get out and you need to exercise <laughs> and you need to spend time with other people and you need to socialise. Yeah. And that sounds like a great time. To, did you win? Again, Lyle, I don't know what you expect. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh, we had fun. No, we didn't win. I think it was a... It was. Um... It sounds like your body won, though. <laughs> yes, yeah. Because your body's feeling sore, so that means that uh, that's a good it thing. It was a personal win, yeah. yeah. Yes, so you can claim a win. Yes. We, yes. won't, we won't talk about the score. Yeah, the score was like 76 to 13, so it was okay. Oh! Oh! <laughs> Ouch! Yeah. What were you grateful for, Lyle? You, 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 did, you did better last time. <laughs> uh, what am I grateful for? What am I grateful I had, I had a whole bunch of things I was going to be grateful for this morning. They always seem to just like vanish out of my mind. As soon as you ask me that question, I just go blank like, uh, oh, uh, no. uh. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm grateful for... Mm-hmm. Masks, masks. Yes, um, those those ones that we wear. Not because I'm not because I'm worried about COVID so mm-hmm. much because it's kind of like basically none in New South Wales at the moment, but because I've been working in a very dusty environment um, right. in the evenings. Yeah, and I've been working on my house and I created so much dust yesterday. <laughs> there was so much dust you could open the door to the room and you could hardly see to the other side of the room. <laughs> So dust mask was uh, very, very important at at that particular point to uh, keep the dust out and stop me from... uh, Getting sick. Yeah, dying from lung cancer. (laughs) Yeah. So that was a very positive... Particularly an old house full of coal dust. Yeah. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Tell us some positively different news this morning. Yes. So some news this morning. This one actually got me a bit teary-eyed. I thought it was very, very beautiful. Basically, a 10-year-old walked from Italy to England to see his grandmother. Oh, really? Yes. Italy to England. So that's approximately 1,700 miles. But in kilometres um, here in Australia, that is 2,736 kilometres. Okay. So if we were to put that into Australian perspective, I wonder how far we would get if we started yes. walking from Newcastle and we went, what was it, 2,000? 2,736 kilometres. Would we make it to Perth? Oh, I think that would no. That's no, that's over no. three thousand kilometers. Okay, so we're not going to make it to Perth, but we're probably going to make it to Kalgoorlie, maybe. Maybe yes. I know that if you we're well, somewhere from, across the Nullarbor. Exactly. Uh, if you a go, long way. If you go from about Sydney to Alice Springs, if you walk that amount, right, approximately that far. That's that's a significant hike. That's a little bit more than you know. I'm going to go down the street and visit my grandma. Exactly. <laughs> So what was the purpose for him walking from Italy to the UK to visit his grandma? Why not just jump on a train, Mm -hmm. catch a plane, (laughs) sail a boat, drive a car? Something easier. (laughs) Or ride a bike. Ride a bike. No, no. He walked it. He walked it. He walked it. Um, So, you know, visiting loved ones, especially during a pandemic, is hard. Yes. So, you know, there was no available flights from his hometown and due to quarantine, everyone was, you know, supposed to stay home. But he, um, 
Romeo, little 10-year-old Romeo, he didn't allow the difficulties to stop him from visiting his grandmother. Um, In an interview, he said that I hadn't seen Granny for half a year, a year and a half, actually. So during lockdown, he decided to surprise her. Oh, man. That's just that's that's amazing right there. It's really she nice. must be such a special granny. Yes, yes. And he must be a very, very like just kind hearted grandson. Um initially She sounds like the kind of granny that deserves a grandson like this. Exactly. They yes. Absolutely. They deserve each other. It's It's so heartwarming. (laughs) Um, So initially, his parents, obviously, when Romeo talked to his parents about this, they said no. They said no many times. He said that he asked his parents and they said no more than 50 times. Okay, so here's the interesting thing. If you catch any kind of transport during a pandemic, you have the risk of infection. Mm. But if you're outside Mm -hmm. in the fresh air, the risk of infection is almost zero. And you've got like no social contact. You're just walking down the road. There is, you know, that's probably the the safest environment that you can actually be in. The safest form of travel during a pandemic is to walk. So, you know, um, actually, um, when finally, when he finally, his parents agreed, he started to make his plan that was COVID safe, just like you said. So he said he drew a map and he decided to walk, take boats and do this trip naturally to help the planet. And you know what? He, he decided, you know what? I'll take dad because it'd be handy to have an adult. Along the <laughs> yeah, way. I was going to ask this question. So yeah, all right, I'll take dad. Why not? I wonder how dad felt about this. Like, Oh, I've got to walk through the UK. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> it's a long walk. I don't know if you would take one of your, any of your sons, uh, if they wanted to walk to, to Alice Springs, would it'd you? be it'd be such an amazing father son adventure, and the bonding that they would get from this experience is yeah. just fantastic. This is yeah. something they'll carry with them, you know, for their entire life. Yes, absolutely. You know, and I can imagine that there'll be a loss of income, then certain level of expenses because it's not something you're going to do overnight. Mm-hmm. But what an investment in your child! Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I just think um, so. Romeo and Phil, his father, they set off their set off on their journey from June twenty. Okay, so it's Romeo and Phil. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking that this is the paternal grandma. Oh yeah, yeah. Because Phil sounds like from someone from the UK. From the UK, yeah. And I reckon Phil <laughs> has married an Italian girl. This is my theory. I don't know. This sounds sound. <laughs> maybe maybe it's uh, maybe it's a UK couple living in Italy, or maybe it's an Italian named Phil. They are. They are. I know someone is from the UK in the family. Yes. It's probably the yes. father. So they tracked. They tracked across Italy, Switzerland, and France. And in the course of their travels, as you expect, they spent many nights under the uh, the stars. They were also forced to fend off wild dogs. They got a lost a time or two. They suffered sore feet. They befriended. They befriended a wild donkey and took some time to volunteer at a refugee camp in northern Ca- Calais. Ah, oh, yes. there you go. That's amazing. Yeah. Calais, Calais. Sorry, yes, Calais. Yes. This, um, is, this is Renee struggling with her French. <laughs> I even have a French name. I should know this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no matter how many you know adverse conditions they faced, they just kept on going. And that's not only was he there to going doing this trip to see his grandmother, but he other, he had another compelling reason why he took this trip, and it was to raise money um, to help refugee children. Now. Oh. Okay. Yes, Romeo is. He lives in Italy 
and he befriended um, his friend Randolph, whose family was often forced to march mile after mile until they made their way from Ghana to Italy. So, you know, Romeo having these friends who are refugees themselves and and just forming those really close bonds, decide, you know, I take, I want to take this opportunity to raise money for my for refugee children, but also to go see my grandmother. <laughs> now, surely Randolph didn't walk from Ghana to Italy. That'd be a long. That'd be an even longer walk. That would be. And through really, really hostile country Exactly, too. exactly. Yeah. That'd be challenging, but I imagine he did a, a bunch of long walks yeah. in that whole process of uh, immigrating to Italy. Getting there. Uh, so eventually, 93 days later, on September 21, they arrived in uh, London. They did their two weeks of quarantine, and then Romeo was able to see his grandmother with his, his father. And his grandmother, she was so happy to see him, but she was very like, uh, did you really walk all this way to see me? <laughs> How did you get here? <laughs> she says, exactly. What are you doing here? <laughs> she said, children can ex- inspire us and lift us all up. On behalf of all the grannies in all the world, I want to thank Romeo as well as hug him and kiss him lots. Uh, isn't that amazing? What a great story right there. Mm. And uh, if your kids ever want to do something <laughs> adventurous like that, my advice would be just get out of there and do it with them. It will be an investment. That's the way we have to look at these kind of things. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, so let's tell some more serious stories this morning. Uh, New South Wales uh, has just is in the process of, uh, this weekend in fact, churches can go up to 300 people in, at church. Yes. Which is what? Where do you, whereabouts do you go to church, Renee? I go to Mount Druitt. Of course, you do. You're yeah. the uh, youth pastor. Youth pastor at Mount Druitt. Yeah. So this probably hasn't affected you that much. I'm thinking Mount Druitt's probably what 100, 150. It's 100, like and I think because does that affect the building? Because the building size. Building size still counts. Okay. Well, it's still 100. Unfortunately, yeah, that's right. Okay. okay, so but churches can go up to three hundred. Uh, this is something that uh, and and Brian Houston has been campaigning for this quite strongly. Thank you, um, because he's got a church of that seats four thousand people, oh, and he's wow. been only allowed to have a hundred people, and he's like, "This is ridiculous! You yeah. put a hundred people in a four thousand seat church, yeah. and they need binoculars to be able to see each other. <laughs> this is not a safety issue. This is just persecution of Christianity." Kind of feels uh, that way. It didn't use those kind of words. I'm using those words. <laughs> Uh, and 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 then and then you know he's pointing out that the AFL Grand Final, of course, is going to have forty five thousand fans allowed in it. Uh, these fans will all be shouting and yelling and spitting and breathing on people and high fiving and whatever else people do at mm. a Grand Final. Yeah. And one or even we're not supposed to even sing, sing. in churches. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a massive double standard right here. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, uh, Brian Houston has, has definitely been campaigning here in New South Wales to uh, get some changes, and they've re- lifted it to 300. Uh, but what it does show is, um, you know, it's just a war on Christianity. Victoria is, of course, just the most ridiculous state on the planet. Um, <laughs> sorry to put it that way, but from the 2nd of November, pubs will be open with 20 to 40 people in them, depending on whether they are in Melbourne or regional Victoria. Uh, churches... So pubs where people drink alcohol and inhibitions go down the tube and we know that they are the primary hotspots that started uh, so many of the infections in both Victoria and New South Wales when the Victorian infection spread to New South Wales, it was spreading through pubs. Wow. This was the primary hotspot. Churches and places of worship, yes, it has happened in Korea. It did happen in uh, one place of worship in Melbourne. Mm Mm-hmm. 
but pubs have been just copying it left, right, and centre. Yeah. And so churches and places of worship, you know, mosques and so forth, have been very, very safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course. While they're opening pubs, they're not opening churches. Churches are still at zero in Victoria. Man. And this is despite uh, a 10,000 wow. name peti- petition with 300 pastors signing it saying, look, we can open. And, and, and Daniel Andrews come out and said, oh, you know, the pubs are, are more strictly regulated. Well, then strictly regulate the churches. It's not that hard. There's yes. lots of people that would be happy to like, we will regulate. Just let us open our doors. Yeah, yeah. You know, apply the same kind of regulation, problem solved. Yeah. And we know what happens in these pubs. Yeah. Um, anybody who's been to a pub during COVID lockdown will tell you straight away that everybody's in there just socialising and acting entirely as normal, no social distancing whatsoever at all. Uh, so it's got nothing to do with health. It's all to do with Daniel Andrews' war on religion. Uh, Western Australia, of course, uh, rules are a little bit more relaxed over there because they haven't had COVID for like ever. <laughs> um, so they're down to the two-metre rule. Uh, but they're scrapping the two-metre rule for theatres, concerts, auditoriums, amphitheatres, cinemas, comedy lounges and performing arts centres, but not churches. Oh. So, so you can go to a comedy lounge, right? You can go to a comedy lounge. But not a church. So seriously, <laughs> seriously, um, and they're like, "Oh, that's because uh, these venues are all seated and ticketed." Is that so hard? Seat and ticket your church. Put some numbers on the seats. Mm-hmm. It's not a. This is not a difficult thing to do. Yeah, we do. People that in our need church. to go to church. People mm. need to be worshiping. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have suicide going through the roof. We have calls to Lifeline going through the roof. By the way, the number is for Lifeline one three one 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 four. Um, if you need to call them for any reason, and uh, don't hesitate to do so if you need to do so. But uh, we've got, you know, we've got all of these things happening that churches stop because they provide social connectedness, they provide community, they provide worship, they provide for a connection with God and with yeah. your Creator. Yeah. People need churches now more than anything else. Whenever there's a crisis, churches fill up faster than any other venue. Yeah. That's where people go during times of crisis. But our governments don't get that because they have this uh, war on religion and it's just like, well, let's just cut our nose off. Uh, to spite our face. By the way, somebody got the correct answer for the quiz for bragging rights. Um, so well done to uh, that person. Um, yeah, anyway, uh, those stories. Let me see what else we've got here to talk about. Let's talk about cannabis um, and the legalization of cannabis. So in Washington State, uh, crashes involve, involving or crashes involving cannabis went up from 19% to 25%. So this is a bunch of uh, hmm. research that has come out that is obviously stating the obvious. Yes. Everything we already knew. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> in fact, every state that has legalized cannabis has had about the same result uh, from 19% to 25%. Uh, 30% of traffic ac- accidents involving cannabis were caused by cannabis. Mm. So that's that's significant. Um, so and and basically, you double the risk of death and injury from an accident uh, as a result of cannabis use. So this is a serious issue that you know we need to be addressing. Yeah, um, it doubles or triples the risk of a crash. But what is also interesting? Think about this: 
In those states that have legalized cannabis, the road death toll has actually gone down. Now, this is weird because you look at the, the risks are going up significantly, but the death toll is going down. You might ask why. Is everybody just like high as a kite and driving down the road at like five <laughs> kilometres an hour? No, that's not the ant. That's not the reason. It's because the use of alcohol has gone down and alcohol is so much more dangerous. Okay. Hmm. So what this legislation has done is it has not shown cannabis to be a safe drug. It has highlighted just how dangerous alcohol, alcohol. is. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, alcohol, a legal drug, is sort of everywhere. And cannabis, only legal in some places. And they're saying, you know, if we were starting from scratch and we were going to say, okay, which drugs are we going to, you know, which recreational drugs are we going to legalise, there's no way in a million years would, would alcohol ever be legalised if it was a new drug that was being brought onto the market for recreational use. Mm-hmm. It just never would because it's just so dangerous. And so it hasn't downplayed the danger of cannabis, but it has highlighted just how lethal alcohol is. Very, very interesting uh, piece of research right there. Okay, what have we got time for? Okay, Francis has uh, Pope Francis has come out in support of the of LGBT marriage. So this is an interesting one, um, and stated that uh, LGBT plus people have a right to be in a family and that they have created civil unions to ensure that. Um, and this I find most interesting because you know the Bible speaks against uh, the concept of LGBT marriages, mm. and yet the Bible speaks in favour of um, you know, heterosexual marriages, mm. strongly speaks in favour of it all over the place, including for the clergy, and Francis was willing to compromise on the LGBT part but not the celibacy part. Huh. You know, and, and to me, it's like, okay, the Bible is saying one thing and he's like, yeah, well, we won't worry about the Bible, we'll just go with, but we're not going to do anything about celibacy, which is causing havoc across the world, particularly with the sexual scandals that come out as a result of it. We don't do anything about celibacy. Yeah, it's a strange world in which we live. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Joining us on the phone right now for our monthly update on the book of Genesis is Barand Neustraten. Barand, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Lyle. Barand, when we left off in the book of Genesis, we were talking about the life of Abraham and his experience coming obviously out of Ur, down into Egypt, um, some of the challenges that he had there. And we, we, we got up to the point of the Elamite invasion. Uh, can you can you give us a bit? So we had we had uh, of course Lot. Uh, we had the division of the land with Lot. Lot went down to the city of Sodom. Sodom. Can you tell us a little bit about the Elamites and the Elamite invasion and what is actually taking place here? Yeah, it's interesting that Elam is one of the sons of Shem. So they might have been Shemites if these uh, if that's where the name was coming from. Uh, the other very interesting thing, Lyle, is that the the place uh, Susa was in Elam's capital. And uh, it's interesting that that was, of course, recorded also in the eighth chapter of the book of Daniel, uh, when it belongs to the, still to the Babylonians. Now, Elam is, uh, today's Elam is in the southwestern part of Iran. It's really wedged in between Iraq and Iran. And uh, it was dominated by, it was dominated firstly by uh, well, Ashurbanipal, which was one of the last major uh, leaders of the Assyrians who occupied it, 
And it, an interesting thing is that he actually took some of the people from there and he took them to the land, to Samaria, where he actually resettled them, which is also interesting. But the Elamites, yeah, they were a significant kingdom at the time. There was a confederacy of about four kings, and uh, they tried to exert themselves uh, beyond their own Mesopotamian districts. Uh, they had come down in Canaan, and they had uh, subjugated the five cities there of the plains of, uh, of well, of the, the, uh, the valley of, of the Jordan. And uh, they were taking tributes, and when they stopped paying, uh, well, they came to collect, and that was the cause, basically, of the war. So if you look at a map of the world today and you look at Iran and the distance between Iran and Israel... That is a yeah. significant distance even by today's standards. You know, that's not just like your, uh, you know, Sunday afternoon drive. That's a significant distance. So this, so the Elamites were a significant empire at this particular period in history. Yeah, they, they, they certainly uh, had a, yeah, a prominence. There's no question about that, uh, whether it was outright. The ultimate power really... Uh, was Egypt. Egypt, in principle, that's the interesting thing, controlled the land of Canaan where, where Abram had settled, in a sense, and they had their representatives in all major uh, populated areas. They didn't bother in occupying it, uh, and uh, they allowed, apparently, this, um, this Mesopotamian king. I mean, he was on the eastern side of the Mesopotamian district, but, as you say, he came a fair way. They allowed him to do what he uh, intended to do and actually did do. Um, they didn't uh, consider Elam a, uh, what shall I say, a threat to them uh, themselves and their own integrity as a nation. So Elam had a prominence, but nothing like Egypt of today. Right. But it's going to be a significant power, and Abraham comes into this story. But Abraham's not living in the Jordan Valley. He's not living in the, any of the areas that were actually attacked by the Elamites. Uh, he's up in yeah. the mountains of Judea, where the Elamites yeah. didn't go. Uh, yeah. So how does he get caught up in the story then? Yeah, now here's the interesting part. You recall that him and Lot decided that they would separate because they, uh, they're they having the same uh, water holes facilities and uh, that led to disputes between the the herdsmen of Lot and, uh, and the herdsmen of Abram and he he felt that uh, it wasn't worth it, and so he, he gave Lot the choice who opted to go into the Jordan Valley because it's so much more fertile, and that became his downfall because instead of staying outside of Sodom and Gomorrah, he began to live inside of those cities, and uh, that cost him, actually, everything that he had hoped for to achieve in his life. They lost everything, and, of course, they were taken prisoner by the Elamite kings and uh, taken away, uh, obviously, to serve as servants there in their kingdom. Um, yeah, it's fascinating how uh, greed can um, can be a very bad indicator, a very bad master. And that is what happened to Lot. Wasn't it not for Abram? He would have lost um, everything, including his freedom. And the way that societies worked in those days is that when you were captured like that, you were auctioned off into slavery. You, you might well be sold off, uh, or you just served them, or, or whatever. Yeah, they, uh, you were then their possession. 
Mm. And that is what uh, what uh, what befell uh, Lot. He uh, he was very fortunate to have an uncle like Abraham. Okay, so Abraham decides to act, and what does Abraham do? Abraham gets himself organized. He he learns about the fate that befell uh, that befell the uh, his, his nephew, and so he uh, he organizes himself very quickly. He uh, he has uh, 318 trained servants, which is quite interesting. They knew how to fight. He had uh, a few of the uh, Amorite uh, allies. Abram uh, was uh, reasonably well connected with some of the Canaanite people there. And it's interesting, he uh, pursues them. And as he pursues them, he goes north because if you travel from Mesopotamia to Canaan, you got to go along the river Euphrates. So from from if you look at the map, you have to go from Mesopotamia northwards, the same way that Abram came into the land of Canaan, and then you get to northern Mesopotamia, and then you come down in a southwards direction into Canaan. So uh, Abram was pursuing the armies from the Mesopotamian kings and overtook them, uh, sort of in the district of, of Damascus, and uh, they uh, attacked them. They didn't expect that. And the numbers are not very big, 318. So that was apparently sufficient to defeat that army that was unprepared for battle. And uh, God was with Abram, and uh, he defeated them and pursued them. They certainly never came back. He never gave them a chance to regroup. Abram had a, he almost could say he had a military sense that was very fortuitous. It was really good. And the, the, the uh, what shall I say, the, the victory was complete. And that's very significant. And that was just with 318 trained servants. And yeah. so he took all the goods and all the people. What, what, what I find interesting, just looking at the uh, strategic considerations here that Abraham employs, is that, you know, he's got a very small force. This is um, asymmetric warfare. And yeah. so he, he's very unconventional in the way that he attacks. He attacks at night. And, of course, a night attack in those days when, you know, there weren't set uniforms, there wasn't um, no. any kind of night observation, there wasn't any – you couldn't send up star shells or flares or, you know, um, no. torches or anything like that. Um, night attacks were incredibly confusing. And the advantage of attacking with uh, a large force with a very, very small force is that once you start panic – as the larger yes. force is waking up, every mm. shadow is a potential enemy uh, yeah, that has to be killed. That's right. We see that with the Midianites again. And, with the, uh, yeah. with, of course, with uh, Abraham's men who are attacking, they can spread themselves out enough so yeah. that they can attack any shadow without any fear of killing a, uh, a fellow I'm servant. Sure, Abraham. Our own folks. Yeah, the, the the problem of friendly fire might have been a real problem for for those uh, Mesopotamian kings. <laughs> no indeed, doubt about indeed. It. <laughs> okay, so when Abraham when Abraham um, wins this victory, and it's a very significant victory. I mean, this is not a small yeah. force that he's gone up against. This this is a major invasion yeah. that has come down into uh, yeah. into Canaanite territory. Uh, yeah. When he wins this battle, he basically makes a beeline for the city of Salem. Why would he be doing that and why would he be going there after having gained this victory? Yeah, what happens is, so having been uh, even past Damascus, northeast of Damascus, 
in his pursuit of the Mesopotamian kings. He is coming, he's returning home with all the ones that he had delivered and all the goods that he had taken, which by law or by customary understanding would have been the property of Abram because he obviously deserved it. Right of and then he comes down, yeah, that's just the way the, 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 the understanding was of the day, a very strong cultural appreciation was here. So what happens, he comes down south and he comes down uh, towards Salem, which is really, uh, yeah, an old name for Jerusalem. Uh, Salem, that uh, has the, the, the uh, really that's where we get the word Shalom from. Uh, the, the Shin Lamad Memma, the three continental uh, um, letters there of that name. So he comes to Salem, which, interestingly enough, at the time we know from archaeology was occupied by Amorite kings. And Amorites were Canaanites. And yes. uh, so so the, the king of Salem that comes towards him, uh, Melchizedek, it's a Hebrew name, uh, but he, uh, a priest of the true God, but he is an Amorite, so he's an Amorite king, and he's an Amorite priest, and he's an Amorite priest king. And they meet in the valley of um, what was called uh, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, or that would have been in the uh, New Testamental time, the Valley of Kidron. Uh, that is just on the uh, side of the Mount, uh, Mount Zion, on the foot of Mount Zion. Because Jerusalem would have been a small community back in those days, I would think. Yeah, it was. But it was an Amorite settlement, though. Yes. Uh, later on, the Yiddishites took it, but the Amorite in the, the 19th century, which is when BC, when this found place, uh, it was occupied and held by the Amorites. Yeah. So this is interesting because often I think we, we, we sort of uh, assume that Abraham was the only servant of God in the world and that you know other yeah. nations, every, everyone had gone into apostasy except for Abraham. But we find individuals like you know Melchizedek in this case, um, you know even uh, Balaam, uh, who failed as a yeah. prophet but was definitely a true prophet of God from Mesopotamia and, and, and so forth. We, start, we find these individuals who are true followers of God that are parts of nations that we typically uh, rem- we would typically think as, as being steeped in idolatry. What's actually going on here? Yeah. Which is actually true. I mean, they were, but there were pockets of it. I mean, you look at Jethro, the, the, the father-in-law of Moses. He was a Midianite. Now, that's, you know, family through Keturah, who later on was married by Abram. But um, nevertheless, they, they had become pagans. and But there was a leftover, Jethro. It's interesting, and that's, of course, hundreds of years later. But uh, it's interesting that during the days of Abram, that, uh, yeah, you had the... And a follower, in fact, a priest, uh, which uh, meant that he was involved in the in sacrificial system. And as we know also of the collecting of the tithing to which he was entitled to, to, uh, furnish, uh, to, to finance himself. He was a priest of the true God. Mm, remarkable stuff. And, and uh, it, it is. Just, it, it is. It, it, you know, when you look at the ancient world and you see remnants of the worship of the true God coming through from so many different cultures um, mm. right around the world, it does really reveal that, you know, the, the knowledge of God and the worship of God was not just restricted to Abraham. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so why why would it be that Abraham goes from the victory to the priest? Yeah, 
Ah, uh, that's a good question. He he was familiar with the system of tithing, and and here it is the earliest record of 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 the of the ordinance of of tithing, and that was obviously God uh, ordinate. He 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 obviously had instructed at the prior day that this should be so, and Abram. Um, did had on his mind that he should pay one tenth of all that he took. He should pay one tenth to God, and uh, the, the tithing system was a. Uh, it really uh, and still today, for that matter, it really expresses uh, an attitude. Uh, ten in the Hebrew is a number of completeness, and that means everything. So when you give a tenth, it means you acknowledge that everything belongs to God. You keep the nine tenths for uh, whatever purposes, but by giving God the one tenth, you say to God, the other nine tenths, everything belongs to you too. Mm. And uh, and that's the, that's that is really the thought behind the tithing system. Baron, we're going to have to pick this up again next week. Um, I do want to dig further into what happens here with the tithing system. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.